Reset the podcast is brought to you in association with Liars, the non-alcoholic spirits brand. Whether it's low alcohol or no alcohol, Liars helps you enjoy your classic favourite cocktails. Hello everyone, my name is Suki Thompson. Welcome to Reset, the podcast a place for you to get some inspiration and advice to help you live a more fulfilling work life. I do hope that your journey to feel more connected, more inspired, just a bit more energised starts here. Take a moment now with me to reset. This week, Suki Thompson founder and CEO of Let's Reset talks to Ronan Dunn, Executive Vice President and CEO of Verizon Consumer Group. He leads the teams responsible for providing the products, services and experiences to more than 100 million consumers every day. The session, originally recorded for the Advertising Week New York Festival, provides a fascinating insight into one of the most high-profile and influential societal leaders in business today. During this episode, Ronan and Suki talk about why culture is so important to the overall success and health of the company, its people and its customers, as well as Verizon's commitment to the communities it serves and the impact businesses should play in society. Ronan shares the role purpose plays in his personal life and why promoting mental health and inclusion in business is vital now and in the future. Since this podcast, Ronan has announced that he is stepping down from his current role and, amongst other things, will take up the chairmanship of the board of the Six Nations Rugby. We wish Ronan the best of luck in his next endeavours and hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Today, I'm delighted to speak to an old friend of mine, but a brilliant chief exec, I first knew Ronan Dunn when he was the chief exec of O2 Telefonica in the UK. And now, of course, he is the executive vice president and group CEO of Verizon Consumer. Hi, Ronan. How are you? Suki, I'm great. Thank you very much for the invitation to talk today. Oh, it's lovely to talk to you. But, you know, before we go and talk about uh, you as a leader and a little bit about your business, give us a bit of a perspective on the size and scale of Verizon. So Verizon is about a 21-year-old business now, having been the merger of some regional U.S. uh, wireless carriers. And we serve about 125 uh, million customers, and we turn over about $125 billion and have an enterprise value of about $350 So the largest uh, telco operator in the United States, and predominantly on the consumer side, we're just a US business, but actually we're a global provider for our uh, business customers. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I I can hardly even imagine that many customers and the size of the business, it's extraordinary. Um, but one of the things that I've always admired about you, uh, which you certainly did over in the UK with Telefonica and, uh, and O2, but particularly you focused on um, with Verizon and Verizon Consumer, is culture. You know, culture has been at the forefront just as much about the kind of profitable growth of the business. Tell us a little bit about your view on how you get to that kind of cultural transformation. 
So, Suki, I have a couple of deeply held uh, views. One is, and I'm something of a student of uh, Klaus Schwab and the uh, World Economic Forum, I believe in the principles of creating coalitions uh, in order to create outcomes that otherwise weren't possible. And the second thing I believe in is that Talent is widely and broadly distributed in the world. It's just the opportunity that isn't. So when I think about building culture or building an organization, I think about it in the context of how do we create an environment in which people can be the success they deserve to be and we can deliver outcomes that wouldn't otherwise be possible. Because I'll let you into a secret. If you didn't make a difference, it doesn't count. I love that. If you didn't make a difference, it doesn't count. Um, you know, you talk about talent and people, and you know, we now know coming out of the pandemic, um, the war to attract and retain talent is probably more challenging than it's ever been before. You, you, I know you've spoken very openly about attracting diverse and inclusive talent. How are you doing that? I think there's a couple of things at heart here is that people want to uh, be part of something. I think that whether we work remotely or whether we work back in an office environment, being part of something I think is really important. So what we've tried to do is articulate more clearly uh, the relationship between our corporate and business purpose and our citizen purpose in a way that affords people the opportunity to join up and participate in something that is a more balanced, two-sided uh, model. You know, it's interesting in the US uh, that the Business Roundtable back in 2019 actually reset its own purpose statement and acknowledged that it had to be for a broad stakeholder groups, not just solely for the purpose uh, of profit. And we in recent years as, um, um, as a company have been much more articulate in what our citizenship uh, position, truly global citizen position uh, is. And I think that allows us to create an environment in which people are interested in what we do. And then we can talk about how the tools we have, including being in on the cutting edge of technology, how we can deploy those tools in the service of the ambition we have as both a, a global citizen and as an ambitious company who strives for success. That creates an environment in which we can absolutely attract talent, but more particularly, we can engage the talent we have in ultimately an adventure and an ambition that uh, brings them back to work every day. Uh, I find that really interesting. And, and you talk about that kind of global citizenship. What do you really mean by that? So we particularly because of the technology space that we're in, the telecommunication space, we're acutely aware that when you look at um, you know, the UN's uh, global goals, we're in a position where we can influence a significant number of them, uh, whether it be digital inclusion, whether it be the quality of education, whether it be you know, um, the quality of work that people have. So what we've tried to do is focus and say, so what is our role as a company, which of course uh, includes all the stakeholders and we aren't shy about the fact that we're a far profit organization, but we're thinking about it in the way that how can we harness technology? And when I say global citizen, although we predominantly operate in the US, we are in the vanguard of setting the standards for the 5G era, of defining some of the conditions that must be true for this to be the most inclusive generation of communication technology 
ever. And that's why working with UN Foundation, we're actually part of a much broader global initiative around access to broadband, which we recognize as an essential ingredient of active uh, citizenship uh, anywhere in the world these days. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting, isn't it? And, the, and, and just you know, because of the number of customers you've got, because of the number of employees you've got, you've got such impact, haven't you, on so many people. One of the things I'm really interested in is, you know, as a CEO in the States, there's a kind of, I mean, and this happens everywhere, but I think it particularly happens in the States. There's a real demand on you as an individual rather than just, you know, what you stand for as the CEO of the company. You kind of need to, you know, you talked about purpose, but there's a lot of scrutiny on you personally around, you know, what are you doing for global citizenship? What do you stand for? How do you, how do you deal with that as a CEO? And, and how do you think about the, the areas that you're going to personally um, focus on and, and talk out about? I think, Suki, that's a really important point. I think one of the things that, in my view, has changed over the last few years is the expectation that corporates and the leaders within them uh, share and, and, and expose explicit views about things that are not simply business, whether it be, um, you know, equity in, in, in our society. Uh, so it definitely is the case that there is a greater expectation uh, for leaders to, uh, to show up and speak up. Um, what we've tried to do as a business and what I try to do personally is address those areas where the context is such that we as the organization have a role that we can play. Um, expressing opinions about things where we simply have no contribution to the narrative, uh, while it may be legitimate for others, I think for business people, in the positive sense of it, we need to put our money where our mouth is. We need to be talking about things. So if it's ESG and the environment, well, we've raised $3 billion in green bonds in the last 12 months. Why? Because we know as a large user of energy, we need to be part of the solution not just simply explain that we need to use energy because everybody else is using our network. So that's the sort of area where I think you bring the purpose and intent of what a good citizen, corporate citizen means, and then you address it in the context of what tools are available to you in your business, and if you don't have all the tools you need, what are you actually going to do about it? You touched on diversity and inclusion. I'm a passionate believer in that topic, not simply because I think quotas or because I think people are watching from the outside. I'll let you into a secret. I want the best team in the industry. And guess what? I have it. Why? Because I look far and wide and I don't look in just the usual places. And that's why uh, my leadership team has a majority, a female majority and a people of color majority. Why? Because it's the best talent uh, available. So I think that combination of the purpose of the organization, the tools the organization has, allows you to then manifest citizenship in a way that's actually tangible because you're doing something about the things that you have a contribution to make. And that, I think, affords a degree of credibility when then you look to public-private partnership, which, as I mentioned at the start, is essential. We can't do it on our own, but we have to be part of the conversation. Yeah, 
I think listening outside the echo chamber um, is so important, but often it's quite difficult to do, isn't it? Particularly when you become quite introverted and very focused on you know, the business or you know the customers that you've got. It is, it is often difficult to kind of listen and, and look externally. Um, the other thing I'm interested in, and we've seen this particularly during the pandemic, um, because particularly in the States, but globally, um, is such an enormous country for you. We have seen the impact on sociodemographic uh, people, um, the impact of the pandemic, the impact on politics, actually, and the way that people vote is so broad. It's so vast. How do you um, help support that? How do you even recognize your huge customer base just coming from such broad, diverse backgrounds? It's certainly fair to say that in a business of our size and in the consumer space, 100 million consumer customers, that every view is represented within that customer base. What we try and focus on is creating an environment in which we are empowering the individual. Uh, I have a very strong belief that previous generations of technology, to some extent, we have become slaves to the tech. My overarching ambition is to put the tech in the service of the individual, the community, and society. That's great for business, but it also, I think, delivers better outcomes. So in that context, uh, one good example is, is social mobility. Well, in a pandemic environment where more people are going to work remotely, we actually have an opportunity to enhance uh, social mobility because some of the assumptions about um, how people get into the work environment, where they come from, you know, the roles that are available. Some of those rules are being broken. So what is a key enabler of that? Well, there are two things. One is access to great education. So the, the uh, Verizon Innovative Learning Program is really about making sure that best-in-class digital tools are available to teachers and to students in a way that can enhance outcomes. But the second thing is we're one of the largest investors uh, in education as an employer who actually spends more than $200 million a year investing in our own people so that tuition reimbursement and other programs. So we're also making sure that people who perhaps for financial reasons didn't have the opportunity to have third level education can actually come into a work environment and continue their education, therefore further enhancing social mobility. So I think you have to be really practical about these things. It's nice to say that you're intentional about them, you just need to do stuff. And so those two programs are important. The other thing is very openly is about how you pay people. You know, so um, the US has lots of narrative about um, minimum wage and an aspiration to maybe get to $15. Well, uh, all of my employees are, um, earning $15 or more, and the vast, vast majority, well more than 90%, $20 an hour. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. It's the dignity of work. That, coupled with tuition and other things, means that we can offer our employees choices that mightn't otherwise have been available to them. So that's the practicality. And to put it in context, we employ about 125,000 people in the U.S. alone. Wow. I mean, there's so many people. And, you know, I think one of the arguments I hear so often from our clients and businesses is that, of course, people and the planet are important, but the profit is what drives our organization. And some of those initiatives you talk about, there must be moments where you go, well, how do we balance this profit versus investing in our people, those kind of education programs? How do you think about that as the chief exec? I would break it into two or three parts. The first thing is I would challenge anybody that there's a business model that they have where 
people being economically inactive actually is a good thing for their business. So the more people we can facilitate and participate in our society and our economy means that there's more business to be written for all of us. So guess what? It's enlightened self-interest. I think the second thing is educating and developing people and talent allows you to deliver better outcomes, which are consistent with better business. But guess what? It also means you can attract and retain the talent you need in this war on talent. So uh, I, I don't wish to sound kind of naive or trite, but I don't believe that if you want to drive a long-term sustainable investment opportunity for your shareholders, that there's any inconsistency between the doing the right thing for customers, community, and the environment and building a sustainable business. I don't see a conflict at all. And what you have to try and do is not be driven by quarterly 90-day cycles. And for us, one of the advantages perhaps of our industry over others, we just invested $53 billion in Spectrum. It's the largest single investment in technology by a private company in history. Well, guess what? That's a payback over 20, 25, 30 years. So we're entitled to take long-term views because the investment hypothesis for our industry is a long-term one. So that helps as well to not get caught on the 90-day cycle. Yeah, that's an extraordinary legacy, isn't it? Um, I, I want to just talk a little bit more about mental health and well-being. And, you know, obviously it's something that at Let's Reset we measure and we put in programs all the time. The latest OECD report shows that the mental health of us globally um, and, you know, in the States as well, um, has been massively impacted by the pandemic, um, obviously from financial security reasons, the impact of working from home, furlough, uh, you know, many other things. What have you been doing around helping people, um, you know, focus on their well-being and supporting them through this challenging time? A couple of things, if I touch specifically on the pandemic itself and at the, at the start, one of the things we realized was that we had a global context, slightly unusual even in history, for the whole world to be focused on the same issue at the same time. And what it created was a degree of uncertainty that was, for most people, unprecedented. And, and, and if I may, I, I, I liken it to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We have become a consumer society with people, you know, halfway up the pyramid, just scaling and thinking about self-actualization. And then all of a sudden, the entire global society was back at the bottom of the pyramid and thinking about safety, you know? So what we tried to do as a leadership team was, was try to focus and address that. And so we introduced, um, we have a communication program called Up to Speed, where we have, um, you know, videos <clears throat> on a weekly basis. We went to daily live broadcasts with the leadership team, the, the most senior executives. And, and the reason for doing that was we wanted to communicate clearly and directly to our own employees. We wanted to address that even in a world of fundamental uncertainty of public health, there were certain things that they didn't need to worry about. So we were able to go out upfront and say, look, for people working at Verizon, we're not going to furlough anybody. No question of people losing their jobs. Secondly, we realize that in working in a distributed environment, working from home as most people were, there are going to be incremental challenges. So we augmented the availability of childcare and other things. So we, what we tried to do was to take the list of uncertainties and address those ones where we as a company could uh, take them off the table. We couldn't solve the public health issue on our own. 
but we could reduce what I would describe as the ancillary stress associated uh, with all of the other things I have to worry about now that I don't usually. And then the second thing that we did is we invested very specifically in areas around you know, mental health and well-being, both the resources that were available for people who needed, but bringing that conversation to the table, acknowledging stress, anxiety, you know, having you know, Deepak Chopra come and, and do stuff about meditation on a Friday, other things like that, live to 100,000 uh, people in the, in the organization. So what we did was we brought a conversation that maybe hadn't been out in the open and brought it front and center. We talked about the challenges we were facing and we knew others were facing. So just the very fact that we brought it into the open helped and shone some light on it. And then we backed that up with available resources. Have we solved? Of course we haven't. But what we have done, at least I believe, is created an environment where those of us who maybe weren't as sensitive and aware on this topic are now better, and therefore we can watch, observe, and look out for our colleagues. And those of us who have suffered the stresses and anxieties associated with this and other work uh, and life challenges now know that there are more resources available and are hopefully a little more confident that it's a conversation they can start out prejudice. So um, that's our piece of the jigsaw, but uh, it's undoubtedly the case that this is a new reality that we all have to strive to address every single day. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I love the fact that, you know, Deepak Chopra, how wonderful to have uh, him involved. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that we have found is that senior people talking about, you know, some of their own struggles um, to your point, is really important. What, what have you found most challenging around being a leader in the last 18 months? I think those of us who enjoy social interaction, um, speaking in advertising week, I'm going to go um, hard here and say we had a, an incredible marketing miss by accepting the fact that we were going to do social distancing. What we meant was physical distancing while maintaining social intimacy. But we didn't say that. And so we gave this impression of uh, social distancing in a way that actually almost reinforced people's vulnerability and separation and isolation. So I think that's something that we can learn from. But, but secondly, what I would say to the, to the specific is one of the things that I did was talked actively about, you know, what worked for me, what I was missing. And as a, a personal initiative, which I shared uh, internally with teams and others was that um, I've been blessed all my life with rude and good uh, uh, mental health. And so one of the things that I did without ever referencing mental health was I made it uh, a point in the first six months of the pandemic that every day and every week I reached out to people that I hadn't spoken to for a while. And I re-engaged with probably 500 people over that time. Some people I hadn't talked to for a week, some people I hadn't talked to for a month, some people I hadn't talked to for a year or two. And what was really interesting, because we were all in the same boat, I would say that more than 95%, probably closer to 99% of those reaches, some by message, some by email, some on LinkedIn, some other things is a response. The response rate was huge because people appreciated the, the conversation. And out of that, I did loads of uh, extra Zooms and, and, and blue jeans and, and things. So I think just acknowledging the fact that some of us need to be social animals and that needed to be in touch gave also permission, you know, including people that I hadn't spoken to for 15 or 20 years who I still had a contact, I reached out. 
and they appreciate it. But you know what? It was as much about it was for me as well. But exposing that to people, I think, helped. And people felt permission to pick up a phone or send a text or, or uh, acknowledge the fact that they needed uh, some sort of social engagement. So marketing opportunity next time around. Yeah, and you know what, Ronan, I love the fact that you talked about that. In our seven leads, you know, relationships is such an important one. And those people that have done what you've done, they say, you know, not only it has made a big difference to those 500 or so people, but to yourself. It's so yes, absolutely to your own well-being. And it's such an easy one to when you're busy or, you know, like we have been, just to forget about it and then go, oh, yeah, I could have done that. So, you know, that, that's brilliant. We just got a couple of minutes left. Um, you know, as a leader, you know, we're now going back into this kind of different way of working, maybe hybrid ways of working. Um, you know, as you said, you've been a sort of, you know, you're, you're a constant learner. You're a constantly love to challenge yourself. Um, what advice are you giving yourself as a leader to cope to grow, to evolve over the next uh, two to three years as we come out of this pandemic time? Two things I maybe leave people with. The first thing is always to remember, it's not what you do, it's what you make happen. So you almost by nature of focusing out improves your own uh, well-being uh, anyway. Uh, and the second thing is that your, your output is by definition finite, but your impact and influence can be infinite. So being vulnerable, being accessible, being transparent, that sort of authentic leadership, which, you know, it's never changed. Guess what? You're the best person at being yourself. And the more you can do that, the more likely the people around you are going to appreciate that and support you. But if you can make a difference, it's because of the contribution you'll make to allowing other people to feel that they have your confidence and as a leader that they feel that you have their uh, back and guess what that way you'll make them the success they deserve to be and that's the outcome that we're all after yeah absolutely i mean look you've been there i think five years haven't you yes five years this week wow so if we you know we're chatting again in i hope less than five years but five years time what would you like your legacy to be oh very simple that people uh, um went somewhere they didn't believe they would otherwise have gone, achieved something they didn't believe was possible. Because ultimately the definition of leadership is taking people to places they wouldn't otherwise go. And if one person does that, then that in itself is a success. Wow. Do you know what, Ronan, when you left, uh, I remember talking to you and, and chatting to you about actually let's starting Let's Reset and talking about the importance of culture, of running, you know, for me then transformation, projects that had well-being and performance at the heart of them and you said to me you should follow your passion you should make a difference you should think about the legacy that you can give but actually giving people the very best opportunity to perform and be themselves and i you know i can't think of anyone better to have as my hero um to do that but also you know big thank you for encouraging me uh, but also thank you so much for talking to me today i think so many of what you've said is is really inspiring but also you've got some real tangible difference and not only have you done that for a few people you've do, done that for thousands of people millions of customers at probably the most difficult time globally we have ever experienced so um Ronan dunn thank you very much for being my guest today Suki, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
for listening. If you've enjoyed Reset the Podcast, I'd love it if you would forward it to your work colleagues, friends and family. Reset the Podcast is a Let's Reset and Advertising Week global production. Executive producer is Richard Larson, with me, Suki Thompson. Thanks to our sponsor, Liars Non-Alcoholic Spirits and voiceover artist, Talitha Penny. Music provided by Audio Network. <laughs>